Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us so much. You're a God who forgives us. You do not keep record of your children's sins, though man does. We thank you that you don't. We thank you that you are the perfect definition of love. You love us. You forgive us. And you teach us to forgive as we have been forgiven. We thank you for that. We thank you for your protection. You've always protected your people. You're a good father. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 many times. It's those great verses where the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. As he speaks of our great father, um, I was thinking about this passage today. When you look at a nation like we're looking at over a 40-year period in one book, Numbers is basically the 40 years of wandering. And I think that's where that, that understanding of God just really gets highlighted. Uh, you and I are in our daily grind in a sense. And there are days, certainly, we recognize that his mercies are new, and then there's some days we don't. We just go on with life. When you stop and look at what is going on with the nation of Israel, you see how merciful God is. So that's in expanse over this 40 years. And then, of course, over the entire history of the nation recorded in the scriptures, you just see a very merciful God, particularly to a very rebellious people. Lamentations is an interesting passage because it is our dear prophet Jeremiah lamenting. He has done everything humanly possible, everything God's asked him to warn the nation of Israel coming judgment. They have rejected him. They have put him in dungeons and done horrible things to him. And he laments, and that's what Lamentations is about. But in the middle of that lamenting, we see him turn to the hope of God's mercy. And when I read these passages, particularly in Numbers, and we're in a, you know, we're in a census passage tonight, 26, uh, a little bit challenging um, to study and present a little bit. Um, but as I go through it, I, I'm reminded that this is this, this snippet of 40 years of ministry uh, that Moses has had to this nation. And he's had his failures. He's not allowed to go into the promised land. We'll see that in chapter 27 tonight. But you see the mercy of God, and when you stand back, and I think when you and I stand back and look at our life, so we have to do that every once in a while, don't we? Because when you're in the forest, you can't, how does that go? You can't see the trees in the forest, or however that is. When you stand back sometimes, you can look and go, wow, mercy of God, mercy of God, mercy of God, mercy of God. And that's what I keep learning from this, how merciful God is, despite his children's sin. And we love him for that. And he is a great encouragement to us. Well, tonight I want to look at how God provides for a new generation. He gives them a new land. All in perspective here at all anticipating. And a new leader in these two chapters. I want to try to get through two chapters tonight. Uh, 26 is a long census that's taken, the second one in this book. But there are some interesting things we want to learn from that. So let's look at a couple of thoughts here tonight. Number one, God's grace to the next generation. Uh, here we come to chapter 26. We've just come off to 25. If you're here last week, you go, oh, wow, what a chapter of, of just wicked abandonment of God and how God deals with this and how he rises up Phineas who takes in his own hands, certainly by the direction of God, and, and stops immorality, literally, and the plague is stopped, and just uh, unbelievable that the nation so quickly had slipped into such idolatry. But then we come to 26, and God wants to show them what he's done, how he has protected them, how he has grown them. He has given them promises that they're going to be like the sands of the seas, the stars of the skies, and their numbers. And so now we come to another census, the second in this book. Look with me at the first four verses. 
Then it came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's household, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So Moses and Eliezer, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the, by the Jordan at Jericho. You see really where they're at here saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old upward as the Lord has commanded. Now the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were, and we'll stop right there for a moment. Now the last census was in chapter 1 and 2, you remember that. And that census was now just about 40 years previously. And it was in the, uh, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, there just before they left the mount there. But both censuses are uh, have some things in common. One is it's a more of a military purpose. You see this. How many, he says, how many people do we have that can go out to war in verse 2 here? And so it's 20 men, 20 years of age or older, fit for military service. They need to know how many men they have. The first census prepared them, when you think about it, prepared them to wander in the wilderness. God knew they were going to meet opposition. They did. Nations came out against them. Uh, fearful and hatred towards them, and they had to battle, and so they need to know what was going to happen there. But in the second census, as we get into here into 26, this was also preparation for battle. You remember right at the end of chapter 25, verse 16 through 18 there, God says, be hostile, verse 17, to the Midianites and strike them. For they've been doing tricks and idolatry and all this stuff to you, and and uh, I want them dead. And boy, we'll see that shortly. 31, chapter 31, when we get there, what happens there. I, and so they're, they're about to enter the land of Canaan. And, and, and so that's also going to require men who are ready to go. So not only do they have to take on the Midianites and Moab, probably, probably those groups are together, as we saw last week. But they're also going to cross that Jordan, and Jericho's over there. And then AI and so forth, and battle after battle after battle awaits them. And so God is preparing them uh, for war. And he wants to know how many men can go out and fight. Now, there's possibly a bigger issue here that's another reason for the second census, is that the division of the territories, that's going to happen. As they go into the promised land, and this is all God looking forward, showing them that he's going to do something great. He's going to give them this land, and, and he's going to tell them how they're going to separate. He's going to do all those things while they're still across the river, still living in tents, not having any land. He's already telling them, I'm going to give you these territories. I think that's pretty cool. And so this census is also part of that. We've got to know how many we have. A lot have, well, the older generation has completely died off. And there's been a lot dying off from plagues. So how many do we have? How many Israelite men, 20 years and older, are there? Now, there's a few differences from the first census to the second census. The first census gives a total number of men in each tribe. We, we see that in chapter 1 and 2, 1 and 2. The second census gives a total of men who are listed not only by total of men, but also here, which is interesting, it gives the families and what we probably would be kind of sub-tribes within tribes. And you'll, you'll see all these names as we kind of briefly look down at these different groups. You'll see all these names that are there. Now, um, this may have to do with some of the leaders that, because remember, a lot of the leaders were struck down dead uh, at this plague. And so they're trying to figure out what families are left, what are their names, and are they still connected to these tribes? Now, another interesting fact about the second census as we get into this is many of the names go all the way back to Genesis. Now, in the first census, the names weren't listed, but this one they are, and, and it's interesting, they go all the way back to Genesis, and you'll see lists of Jacob's sons and grandsons that are listed here, and then their offspring that are in this passage. And I, I think that's fascinating. And I think it's possible that, and, and certainly Moses has been writing, um, God's had him writing the Pentateuch, and and you know, he's only got probably about a month of life left when we're reading this right here. And he's going to go on Nebo, and the Lord there is going to take him home. Uh, so he's writing, right? He's finishing the Pentateuch. He's going to be writing these phenomenal sermons that we'll look at in De Deuteronomy. And so there's a recording of the Old Testament. And in that Old Testament, or to, 
excuse me, the Pentateuch is these lists of names, these promises to these, to these tribes that they were going to have a heritage and their heritage is going to be great. And so I think we see how God values uh, record keeping. I think he values it. One of the things we saw in California in our ministry for years out there, our church has always had membership, but that was always something that the Western people fight. We, we had more battles with churches over being a member of a church. Well, I don't see a verse that tells me I'm a member. And, you know, we are a member of Sam's Club and every other club. <laughs> but you don't want to be a member of a church? <laughs> it was really hard for us to get our mind around it, and we battled those battles. It's just, I think, the West and the independence that's often out there. But here when you study this, God cares about names. And he cares about numbers. And he cares about attendance. And he cares about those things because those are his people. Uh, If you look back at Genesis 49, just to show you an example, and you can find all of these, but I just picked one for an example. Genesis 49. Excuse me, 46, 9. Sorry. Wrote it wrong in my notes. The sons of Reuben are Hanok, Polu, Hezron, and Carmi. Now, if you, you see that right there, those are the names in there. And you can look at all these names. And, of course, uh, it gets, works its way down through Reuben and Simeon and Levi and, and Iskar and so forth. All the, the sons here as Jacob is blessing them and giving them really prophecy coming of each of the tribes. Um, but then when you drop down and you look at verse 5, here they are. Reuben, Israel's firstborn. God cares. He cares who he gives life to, who he gives promises to. He records firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanok, family of Hanokites, Palul, family of Paluites, Hezron, the family of Hezronites, Carmi, the family of Carmiites. <laughs> there they are. He, he cares about it. And I think that's interesting. As I looked at that, I thought, Lord, you do care about numbers. You care about who attends, who's lined up, who's there, who's, who what your people are, and who your people are, and, and their families that are there. Now, it also tells us that the repeated promises of God are passed down to this nation of Israel. He promised them he would multiply them. And, and these numbers prove the faithfulness of God to keep his promises that started in Genesis 12 where he told Abraham that wasn't a nation, that he's going to become a great nation. And from him, all of the nations will be blessed. We certainly know he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ there. Now, despite man's sinfulness, which we see in Israel a lot, and, and, and man's sinfulness, and I, I just... This is just an observation as you study the Old Testament. Man's sinfulness is always fighting against the promises of God. That's what they do. That's what we do sometimes, right? And so what's interesting in this text is Moses now lists some of those family members, some of those people from those tribes who fought against God and were disobedient. And so look at verse 9 with me. The sons of Elab... Numiel and Dothan and Abram, remember those two guys, Dothan and Abram. These are Dothan and Abram and all who called upon the congregation who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. So here he calls out these two men. You remember these guys. Um, they came out in number 16 with Korah and they rose up against Moses. They rose up against Aaron ultimately fighting against God, and he calls them out in this passage. And, and we know that many of them died, and of course that's going to hurt the census numbers. And, and then you drop down to verse 19. God is having him remind these of people who fight against the things of God, right? The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Now we know who these two guys are. They're Genesis 38, right? They disobeyed God. They would not produce an offspring from Tamar. And God struck both of them dead. You can read that again in Genesis 38. We were there. Looked at verse 61. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. 
You remember this in Leviticus 10? These two guys, Nadab and Abihu, they offered strained fire. Remember, they offered false worship to God. It was basically to themselves, but it was false worship. And they too were killed by God. And then you go down to verses 64 and 65, but among these there were, was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron, the priests, who were numbered of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, they shall surely die in the wilderness, and not a man was left of them except Caleb, the son of Jethunah, and, the, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So here God's pointing out that not only these other men, but this entire generation dies except Caleb and Joshua in the wilderness because of their disobedience stemming from unbelief. So what he's going to do is now he's going to count these people and he's going to show what he has done. Here I think he's showing what they have done and despite their rebellion and their wages of their sin, it's interesting when we get to the census, now drop, go back to verse 41, when we get to the census here, the, the collection, the total of the census of, of, of a, a large country, a, a large uh, nation wandering in the desert for, for almost 40 years now, we come and find a census that is almost what it was right before. Now, that's pretty fascinating. If you look at chapter 1, verse 46, or just listen to me here. It was the men 20 and older, fit for war, was uh, 603,550. In verse 51, you'll notice, you can put your finger on it there, you'll notice after this second census, it's 601,730. So, (laughs) what's so fascinating is God's promise to this nation, it can be certainly... In some ways, humanly, the promises of God can be delayed because of sin. But God does not stop his faithfulness. His promises are not stopped because of their sin. At the end of that great passage from Romans 9 through 11, there's there's a great verse that I think is talking to Israel, talking to us, talking to the church. And he says in 1132, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And that's what I think he's doing. He's bringing these groups together and he's showing that none of us deserve what God has done for us. And yet, I love that. He shows mercy to all. So you have this nation's rebellion. They're dying off of plagues. They're, they're dying off from pe- people being swallowed up by the ground. They're dying off because of the older generation's disobedience. And yet their numbers stay relatively the same. Now, there are, some, there are some comparisons that probably should be looked at. All of the groups grow, all of the tribes grow, except five. Five of them uh, did not increase in size. Uh, Reuben, Gad, Ephraim, Naphtali, and Simeon. They had, some, they had less people. Uh, if you do the math, and I went back and looked at chapter 1 through 2, and then back to this one and added them all up. Uh, Reuben was at 46 now they're at 43,730. You can see that in verse 7 in our current text in chapter 26. Gad was at 45,650. Now they're at 40,500. You see that in verse 18. In verse 37, you see where Ephraim was at 40,500. Now they're at 32,500. And then Naphtali was at 53,400, they now have dropped in verse 50 to 45,400. But the worst and the biggest drop was Simeon. Simeon was one of the largest tribes, goes from uh, uh, 59,300, drops all the way in verse 14, if we go back up to 14, to 22,200. Now, if you do the math and you... Look at what the negative is. They, those five tribes lost 61,020 people. Now, it's hard to identify all of the contributing factors, right? And I, I, I read a stack of commentaries uh, trying to kind of see what these guys thought. Most of them pointed to the sin of Reuben and Simeon tribes um, that participated in two, two things, in the Korah rebellion and then the sin of chapter 25, Simeon particularly, that group really participated in Zimri's uh, immorality in 25, and all of them have stunning losses. 
there's, there's great plagues that hit those. And so their numbers are gone. And then remember, this is not even counting all of those who died off in the older generation. So as I sat there and I thought about this, I said, wow, God caused this people to be extremely prolific in like dire circumstances, right? They're having babies. They're, they're, their nation's growing in the desert. <laughs> and here in, in complete rebellion of God, they're sent out in the desert and their shoes don't wear out. He feeds them every, every morning. He gives them everything they need. And they're also, they're also prolific in life. And after all that, they stay about the same after the 40 years. And I think it just kind of boggles your mind to see that God promised to make them a great nation. And, and even more important, understand this, and this is the, the best point, is inside that rebellious nation, all that's going on there is a tribe called Judah. And in that tribe of Judah is the seed of Jesus. And God is fulfilling the promises there. Now, just a couple of more interesting tidbits in this chapter, then we'll get to 27. Look at verse 33. Now, Zelophehad, I was working on this today, Zelophehad, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, Hefer, had no sons, but only daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mahala, Noah, Hagla, Micaiah, and Tizra. We come to this passage, and here, all of a sudden, this little, this little, group here is mentioned. And, and when you think about the Bible, if you study the Bible and you, and you take time, I know in your Bible reading you come to these sections and it's kind of like, well, I think I'll just kind of skip through this maybe a little bit. Um, well, one of the things, if you do read it, you rarely ever see, if ever, see daughters mentioned in the lineage. But here they are. And they're put here. And this man, this Zelophehad, he has no sons, but God gives him these four daughters. And yet, now what's presented here is a legal problem um, as they start to think about these territories that are going to be set up. There's territories for all these tribes, and it's all going to be broken down to sub-tribes, family members, uh, tribal leaders, and their families are going to get portions of this land within this territory that's given to their particular tribe. But it's going to go through the sons. And here comes the daughters of a man who's died probably. And they said, this isn't fair. Now, he's going to give us a solution in 24, but I want, to, I want you to see that in the midst of all of the census and all that that's taking place, that little passage jumps up. Now, drop down to verse 52 through 56. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. This is after the census has now been tallied. The 601,730, you can see that in verse 51 there, the tally of all of those, just, just shy of uh, a couple thousand of of people from the first census. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger group you shall increase their inheritance and to the smaller group you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given in their inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot and they shall receive an inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. And according to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller groups. Now, of course, they're still in the wilderness of Moab, right? They're not there yet. But God is graciously giving them the plan of what's going to happen them before they've actually fought any battles in the promised land. It's looking forward to what he's going to do. I thought about this today. I was just kind of type fishing this, typing this up and working through this. And I thought... Maybe Moses is writing this in a way to give thanks to God for things that haven't happened yet. One of my mentors used to pray with me, and I remember prayers. He taught me how to pray a lot, too. I remember him, he would always pray for things that he would say, God, I want to give thanks to you for what you're going to do. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I want to give thanks for you right now. It's pretty good, isn't it? I don't know how you're going to solve our issues. But we're going to give thanks to you because we know you'll solve them in your perfection, in your graciousness, in your perfect timing. It probably won't be ours. <laughs> uh, we'll have to learn to trust in the Lord because it's, it's, we're going to want to trust in ourselves. 
but I'm going to solve them at that time. And, and when, I, when I really looked at this and thought down, sat down this, this week, I thought, Lord, there's so many things in this that are looking forward. They're still intense. There, there's men up on the hill that want them dead. They're trying to curse them. They're down there, and God's saying, oh, by the way, i got territories for you. You're going to get your land. Um, I had this all planned out. Not one battle's been fought in the promised land yet. That's our God going before us. Now, notice that they cast lots. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They cast lots. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap. Great, you can cast a lot. But then it says this, But it's every decision is from the Lord. Have you ever seen that one? There's another one. 18.18 says, Cast lots, uh, the cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. It's a form of trusting the Lord, right? We see, we see it all the way from the Mosaic time all the way into the New Testament church, right? They cast lots for who's going to replace Judas. We, we see that. Well, we go, well, do we do that today? Well, I do it. You go, you do? Yeah, on the golf tee. There's four of us on the first tee. We throw it. We take a tee. We stand in a circle. We throw it and spin it, and whoever it points to goes first. Yeah, we still do it. <laughs> you can do that? I mean, anybody over golfs, you do that. Okay, you're up first. Isn't that interesting? And, and to them, this is a way they had to trust God. And, and it took the argument out of it. God solved it this way. I always thought, you know, about, we know that Matthias was the one that gets replaced Judas. I always thought about the other guy. He goes, man, if that die just would have rolled one more time, I was in. <laughs> I don't know what the guy did. He, he probably served the Lord in some other way. But, but it's just fascinating. Here, when it comes down to the division of the land and all that's going to happen, where are these nations are, where are this nation's going to land and live and build their families and all that's coming down to casting lots. Trusting God in his sovereignty. Look at verses 57 uh, through 62. These are those who are numbered as of the Levites according to the family, their families of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, Korath is the family of Korathites, Merah of the families of the Merahites. Uh, these are the families of Levite, the family of the Libanites, family of the uh, Hebronites, the family of the Malalites, the family of the Mushites, the family of the Korites, Korath, Korath became the father of Aram. The name of Aram's wife was Jochebel, and the daughter of Levi was born in Le the, the daughter of Levi was uh, who was born to Levi in Egypt. She bore Aram, Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. To Aaron there was born Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. Those who were numbered among them were 23,000, every male from a month old and forward, for they were not numbered among the sons of Israel since no inheritance was given to them among the sons of Israel. Well, just like uh, after the first census, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, in chapter 3, they count the Levites. And, and every time he counts them, they're separated off from the nation because their job is religious, not military. He sets them apart for service before him and the people. And so they're never counted with that. And you'll notice that the Levites were given no territories. Verse 62, they're given nothing. We know we've seen that before. But in chapter 35, we'll see they're given pasture for animals. And they're actually given 42 cities that are scattered out among all of the nations. But there's, there's a great difference in here. The Levites are not counted with the tribe. They're counted differently. And they're counted from one month old males, whereas the others were 20 and old. And so after wandering in the desert there for um, 40 years, the Levites grew because uh, chapter 3 tells us they were 22,000 and now they're 23,000 um, at the end of that. One more little short passage here, 63 through 65. These are those who are numbered by Moses and Eliezer, the priests who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of those who was numbered by Moses and Aaron, the priests, who, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. 
and not a man was left of, of them except Caleb and Joshua, and you remember that passage. And so I think that's pretty amazing And when you start to think about that. A complete turnover of the nation. 100% complete. All of the generation of 20 and older have died off now, and there is a complete new generation that is now called the population of the nation of Israel. And, of course, the only two survivors are Caleb and Joshua. And remember, they, they're blessed because they stood. They, they stood up even with their life on the line that they were to believe in the word of God when none of the rest of them were. So you have a brand new generation. You have a few older men that are there. Um, Joshua's and Caleb and Moses is leading this group, and you come to the end of chapter 26. Now we know how many there are. So there's uh, uh, 601,000 plus men, 20 and older. You add in wives and children. This is why uh, biblical historians easily get to a people of 2 million. It could be more, right? Who knows how many children they had out there, um, but a real conservative number would be 2,000. Now, we get to... Uh, our second point. The girls get the goods. Look at 27, 1 through 11. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, Zelophehad, the son of Hefler, the sons of Gilead, the sons of Micra, and the sons of Manasseh, the families of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of the daughters. There they are. Again, I want to pronounce them again. They stood, above, they stood before Moses and before Eliezer the priest and before the leaders of all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, and yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his families, because he has no sons, give us possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought the case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a heritage, uh, her- her- hereditary possession among the father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any man dies and has no sons, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then it it should go to the inheritance of his brothers. If he has no brothers, then it should go to the inheritance of his father's brothers. If his father's brothers has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative uh, in his own family, and he shall possess it, and and he shall be a salutatory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So in 27, again, chapter 27, now we start to have things that are going to happen in the promised land. They're not happening now. The girls are not getting it now. They're still living in tents. There's still a lot of battles that have to be fought before they get there. But God's allowing this to take place. And what's interesting, as they hear what God's going to do, there seems to be faith in this generation. Now, I don't know if you and I have that kind of faith living out there, enemies on the hill that want to kill us. Um, you know, we, we're really not a war machine uh, that looks like, but we do have God with us. They are believing, and these girls believe that God, that God should give them land because they belong to their father. And they, they believe enough to come in a very respectful way and ask about these things. But it's not only that in this chapter. There's also uh, Moses' the prediction of Moses' death and then his successor. We'll see that in a minute. But first, these girls, they get the goods here. Notice in verses 1 through 11 that... Zelophehad's uh, had a problem here. Um, we saw that in chapter 26, verse 33. He didn't have any sons. And so that's what's addressed first in here. And the problem is it has to be rectified because what's going to happen to Zelophehad's name is he's going to be gone, right? There, there's there's going to be no name that will continue because names were tied to land, and so at this point, now there's a legal point happening. There's a legal problem. And these daughters bring this in. And it's quite interesting that this problem in this law case comes before Moses. And Moses sees it as something valid and makes a decision to set a precedent that we're going to go talk to the Lord about this. And we're going to find out what to do. And so the, the case kind of sheds light on Hebrew law, how, how Hebrew law worked and how it was building. And, and that father's property was divided among sons and then and then the oldest son was given twice as much uh and then when as we study and we actually don't have this in the scriptures as we study the ancient world throughout the middle east in that in that time 
And really, not too long ago, daughters were handled totally different. They were given what, what we would call now, uh, what would be called a dowry, a, a wedding present, if you may. And, it, and if you remember when I was speaking on the uh, lost coins, uh, uh, many commentators believe that those lost coins were probably something of that dowry that was given to her. And that's why she was looking for it. And so they would include coins and money and jewelries and clothes and maybe some household furnishing that would come with it. And if they were wealthy, they would give them um, even slaves and plots of land that they could have. And, and we even know in First Kings that um, Pharaoh gave his daughter a city. That's how wealthy they were. So they would give the girls presents, right? Do they still do that? Girls get presents? Yeah, I know. I don't know what happened to the guys getting the land, but anyway, uh, girls still get presents. Now, these daughters here, uh, there's a problem now. They, they get married. They get their dowry. The father now has no financial obligations against, for her anymore. She now goes underneath her husband, so he's free and clear of that. Now, the land that the new husband has is coming from that father, and their sons now are going to get that land and now you have a problem with the estate of, of the original father if he doesn't have any children. So Hebrew law here was, was designed to keep the, 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 the fields and the, and, and the land in those families. But this is presenting a problem how it could get lost. And so they rectify this. Well, back in Leviticus chapter 25 and then even looking forward towards the end of uh, numbers, they'll see, you know, they're going to come back to the land, the, um, the, the, the time of Jubilee. And a lot of this land gets restored. That's one of the ways they rectify it. But the problem is, if you have no sons like this Zelophad had here, um, the, his land would be transferred now, as we saw here, transferred to his nearest male relative. So that means that it could be in the family. Now, you'll notice in verse 9 through 11, he did this list, right? There's a transfer list that's similar to uh, Leviticus 25. Where we see it played out is in the book of Ruth. Do you remember that? So Ruth returns back um, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, There's land in her family that can be now passed down uh, because they have no boys. The boys have all died off. So Boaz and Ruth have a a little get-together one night. She kind of slides under his feet and very romantic stuff that goes on there and and uh, he throws his covering over her and says, tomorrow I'm going to the town square, the gate, and we're going to get this solved. But the problem is, I'm not next in line. And he's going right back to this. There's somebody else ahead of me. Uncle Bob, he, he's, got, he's got first shot at you. And so next day he's over there, he stands at the gate, and of course Uncle Bob shows up. I don't know his name. I can't remember his name. And, and he says, look, Naomi's returned. She, she has her daughter-in-law, Ruth, with her. The land's up for sale. You're first in line. Do you want it? He goes, well, sure. I'll take that land. That's good soil. He says, oh, yeah. There's a girl with it. Oh. <laughs> Mama may not like that. <laughs> I don't think I want that. And they went right down the chain. And, of course, they changed sandals and spit on each other's hands or whatever they did back then. And, and there's a deal made right there in front of all these elders and people there. And he gets the land. And so this is what, how they followed this. But here, now we have, we have a problem because there is, there's no, these daughters are saying, wait a minute, the current law doesn't allow us to receive this. And so these daughters are concerned and they begin to question the law, how it's put into practice and how, what's going to happen when we get to the promised land because clearly dad's dead. And it's only them. And they're going to go on that land. They don't have anything given to them and they're trying to figure out how God is going to fix this. Now, notice in verse 4, there's deep concerns of their father's name. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn? The Hebrew word actually comes to the idea of forgotten. Why should our father's name be withdrawn or forgotten among his family because he has no sins? Give us the possession among our father's brothers. Because that's where it's all going to go. They're going to be destitute in a way. And so it was a legitimate concern, and it's so legitimate, you notice Moses takes it to the Lord. And, and, and those maybe with a legal mind in here are probably already seeing uh, maybe some problems here. If those, if those daughters get married, right, 
they'll, they'll take the family land of their husbands, and then eventually what happens to the father's land and heritage? It goes away. And again, the solution comes in Numbers 36, the year of Jubilee. But notice in verse 3, they're very interested in, in, in the cause that's being pondered here is what happens. Notice uh, verse 3 is very interesting. He, he says, let me just back up. Our father died in the wilderness. And, and notice what they do. Yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died of his own sins, and he has no sons. So I, I, I had to get some help on this. You kind of, you, I got a stack of commentaries. You try to read through on some of these because some of this is a little hard to work through. Um, so several things are happening here. I think, one, they see the seriousness of sin. I think these daughters here see the seriousness of the offense of going against Korah. Whatever happened there, as we went back and studied that in number 16, whatever happened there, more than probably what's in the narrative there, was really bad. It's the one place in the Bible, I think, where God opens up and swallows up the ground. I mean, it's, it's bad. And, and so they recognize that whatever that was, that was an offense against God. And, and they want to make sure that our dad was not labeled among them. Um, one Hebrew scholar made the connection that this is what they're what what they're doing was um getting if you if if our dad's gone anybody can come along and take our land now and you know who worked that system was jezebel remember when she took naboth's land to give it to ahaz she did that she killed him there was no descendants from him that could go to and that's how they got the vineyard so so this was a problem that was within their law and Moses wants to secure this for these girls. I think it's interesting that these girls recognize their father's sin. I, I think that's important. And that might have something to do with it. So I, I thought of three reasons of, of maybe why God gives them this land and, and, and figures this out. First, uh, Zelophad, uh, he, he, he belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. And Manasseh and Reuben and Gad, they're going to make a proposal shortly because they took on Sion and Og and beat them. And they want to, Manasseh, the half-tribe of Joseph, right, and, and Reuben and Gad, they want to stay on this side of the Jordan. They want to put their animals there. There's great pastures. They said, well, look at that. Remember, we're going to see, and Moses is going to go, hey, wait a minute, you've got to go fight with us. Go, yep, we're going we're gonna to build our crowds. We're going to get our animals in, and we're going with you. And we'll fight till the end, and then we'll come back, but we won't come back till we fight till the end. Remember that? So I think that's part of this, that there's a development coming of, of this land, and, and Manasseh and Reuben and Gad are going to land in there, and Zolophad was part of that Manasseh group. So they're that's going to happen pretty shortly. Then, second, there's the tribe of Simeon here. Now, they lost more than half of its men, um, over 20, probably during the rebellion of Zimri in chapter 25. So you have, when you remember that list of Simeon, how many they lost? They, they were at 59,000 something. Now they're down to 22. I'll guarantee you there was families that didn't have any sons left in that. And so now, probably... God showing Moses, look, we ha this is a bigger problem than just these four ladies. You have the whole tribe of Simeon who's half gone because I killed them. 24,000 people got killed. There, there's a lot of them gone. And so this is a, this is a problem now. How, how are we going to deal with it? And then third, I, and I think this is the most interesting. This is where I pondered this the most because verse 4 is so interesting the way these girls address Moses. These daughters openly confess the sin of their father. And they demonstrate that they understand what he did and that the deadly effects of their father. But though he wasn't involved with Korah, he got what he was deserved because he rejected God at the land of Canaan and died in the wilderness. And they, he uses, they use really good, sin, right, really good structure here in their sentence. Verse four, 3, at the end of 3, but he died in his own sin. Wasn't swallowed up like those ones that were in the rebellion of Kara, and he had no sons. So maybe, maybe uh, part of this is that Bible tells us over and over, starts in the Old Testament, works away in the New Testament. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the to the humble. Right? 
And I think these girls are coming that way. I think they're fascinated. I never thought about these girls. I've read this passage, I don't know how many times, never put a ton of thought to it. You have to study it and preach it like this. I got, I think these girls had great faith in God. And that God was going to be merciful to them. And God blesses them so much that Moses knows he needs to go talk to God about it. And we'll see how it all gets, some more chapters coming, you'll see that they do get their land and God does bless them. Third, um, Moses gets a peek at the promised land and a reminder of the holiness of God. This is a, quite a little a couple of verses here when we start to think about our friend Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up to the mountain of Abraham and see the land which I'm giving to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was. For in the wilderness of Zen, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. Again, we come to a future prediction. This is just staggering. How, I mean, <laughs> God comes to you and says, you know, I want you to drive over to the coast and get a good look at the Atlantic because you're going to die. In fact, you're going to die soon. Uh, it's pretty fascinating, this relationship God has with Moses. And, and I think Moses is, is not, he, I, again, I think this is future. He's going to, because he's, he's not there yet. He's going to go up on Nebel. We're, we, we're going to see that in Deuteronomy 34 where he dies. But, but it's future. This is what's going to happen to you. You're, you're going to die. And, and Moses still got a lot of writing to do. I think he's still got the book of uh, uh, Deuteronomy, all the instruction, all the sermons. He's going to write all the reminders to the nation to prepare them before Joshua leads them in. All that has to happen. But what's happening is as Israel gets closer to Canaan, to the promised land, every day they get closer to going in is every day closer to the death of Moses because he's not going in with them. And Moses, as you see, is the last of the siblings. Miriam's dead. Aaron's dead. They've all been gathered, and now Moses is being told it's time to die. He's told to go up to Mount Abram here, most likely a mountain range. I, I looked and gazed that way as I was on what maybe was Mount Sinai, uh, that they think it is uh, when we were in Egypt last year. Um, and it's just a mountainous country, but if you looked far enough, you were looking towards that promised land, even from Sinai. Um, and this would certainly would have been a lot closer. But verse 14 challenges us as humans, doesn't it? For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife, those bonehead Israelites who were so stubborn and, and so mean. I mean, think about this. This is the way I kind of think about this. Yeah, they deserved a good kicking, didn't they? I'd have taken the rock and probably thrown it at them. I mean, when you look at this humanly, you go, man, Moses did so much, God. And yet he is told, you rebelled. Rebellion was in the heart of Moses here. And, and you rebelled against my command. I told you what to do, and you did what you wanted to do. In fact, you took the credit of it. You treated me. You failed to treat me as holy before their eyes. Rob, the God, rob God of his holiness. He's not happy about that. He is perfectly sinless. And Moses demonstrated sin. So he did the exact opposite of who God was. A gracious, sinless God who provides for his children. And Moses robbed him of that. Now, there's a reminder of God's holiness. There's a reminder of Moses' attempt to rob God of his authority here, which is connected to his holiness. But then I thought, wait a minute. That's not how the New Testament remembers Moses. I love that. <laughs> I love how God looks at his son, Scott Manez. He chooses never to bring my sins up. And this is what he does with Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, just listen to this, 23 through all the way down for ways. My, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months with, by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, chose, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, 
greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. He already had a Christocentric view that God was going to deliver this nation through a deliverer. For he was looking, for, to the, looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. It's all the burning bush, right? By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they had attempted, were drowned. And then you drop down to verse 39. Not same passage. All of these, taken in Moses, had gained an approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. So that, apart from us, they would not be perfected. He has a plan from all the way back to Adam, all the way to the last believer to bring us all into his presence through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, and there's many other passages when you think about Moses and how he spoke about in the New Testament, um, that's how God remembers him. And I, and I thank the Lord for that. And I, and I think, is, is that how we remember people? It's hard to forgive people, isn't it? been really hurt. It's hard to, well, I'll, I'll forgive them, but I won't forget. Well, yeah, it's kind of hard to forget, but that terminology will keep you probably embittered. And, and I love that. And every time we look at that, say, I've talked about Sarah many times. Sarah in the Old Testament, there's just not a ton of good things we see in the Old Testament that Sarah does. We got Middle East because of Sarah. But the New Testament sees her as a holy woman of old who put her trust in God, went through harems because her husband lied. I mean, it's just astounding how God looks at people so different than we do because he forgives them. And then he tells us to forgive as we've been forgiven. These are important truths. And though this is kind of hard when you read this, and I go, I feel bad for Moses, man. It's, it's hard being leaders, right? If you're a leader of any, it's hard. You're always on people pointing fingers at you. You can't do everything right, it seems like. It's hard to be a leader. And you look at this guy and you go, man, he did so much. Moses, you're going to die. Get a look and you're dead. And yet, and yet the grace of God is all over this because he is remembered for his faithfulness. Sinner, save sinner in this room. That's how you'll be remembered. You'll step into heaven. Your sins will never be presented there because Christ died for them. And he took them away. And they're not recounted. And we're, we're credited the righteousness of Christ. We stand in his righteousness. That's how God looks at us. And that's a motivation to live for him, not an excuse to keep sinning, right? That's such a good lesson, isn't that? And so we see, I think, as I look at this, the blood of Christ washes all the way back to Moses and washes all the way forward to the last elect on the earth. Praise the Lord. Fourth thought. The lesser Joshua is selected to lead the nation into the promised land. Look at verses 15 to 17. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which has no shepherd. This is the character of Moses, isn't it? He's just been told, you're not going in. And, and after that promise of his coming death, you see Moses' character come shining through, and instead of complaining about the situation and how difficult it is to be the leader, he says, oh, Lord, be merciful to your people. Don't leave them shepherdless. He's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about God's people. And it's such a mark of a shepherd. And you look, notice he's just pleading with God for their protection. And he does that time and time again, even when he's frustrated and breaks tablets and all those things. He comes back and God says, well, I'm going to wipe him out. I go, no, 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 God, don't. Kill me. I mean, he does that. And God's testing and showing that he's the right man and so forth. And, and I just think this is fascinating. So you see this typology in so many ways. Moses, I'm a shepherd of your flock. You've got to replace me with another shepherd. Well, the true shepherd, Jesus Christ, comes. 
And Jesus used some of the similar terms. He was going from city to city in Matthew chapter 9, from synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming the gospel and healing everybody's diseases and all kinds. It says in verse 35 and verse 36, he saw the people. He felt compassion on them because they were distressed and they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. There's such similarities there. That's how our Lord sees his people. He does not want them, not under his care. The people that he had given to the care of Israel, by the time you get to uh, the Gospels, have totally abused it. Now, God answers Moses' prayer right here. He doesn't get to go in the land, but he answers this, pro- this prayer. Look at verses 18 through 23. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man whom is the Spirit, in, in whom this is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. And have him stand before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of and you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all of the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgments of Urim before the Lord. And at his command they shall go out at uh, and go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all of the congregation. Now here we have the commissioning of Joshua. It's Moses' replacement. And I think it's fascinating because Joshua is this perfectly suited man for the job. He's, he's served along Moses now for quite some time. He's been on the mountains with him. He's, 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 he's been there. He's been his assistants. He's, him and Caleb were just stalwarts, weren't they? Everybody. Can you imagine an entire nation standing against you and one other guy? This is the right guy. And God knows it. And so in verse 20, you see some of the distinctions that he gives to Joshua over Moses. So remember, Moses meets with God face to face, right? He's a man who spoke with God face to face. He met with him. But Joshua is given a little different. He's given Moses' authority, some of Moses' authority. Because the rest of it's going to go on Eliezer and eventually Phineas. We're going to see him leading the nation into battle after battle as well. And that's how they're going to discover the will of God is now coming through these priests who are going to intercede before the nation of Israel and God. And so Joshua, you notice, is recognized by God. He's selected by God. And there's this symbolic laying on of hands in verse 18. And then he's brought before the priest and the whole congregation in verse 22. Hands are laid back on him. We'll see later in Deuteronomy 31 that this whole ceremony takes place. And a pillar, a pillar of God comes out over the tabernacle during this point, And it's God recognizing that Joshua is the new man. As we study, we don't see a ton of leadership of Joshua through Deuteronomy because Moses is finishing his ministry. But where we see the people go, that's our guy, is the first five chapters of Joshua. And we'll get there because it is fascinating. He is a tremendous leader. And when you read and study the book of Joshua, you come away encouraged and ready to serve the Lord. And we see Joshua do that. So here at the end of verse, uh, chapter 27, we find Moses and Joshua jointly leading the nation together in these final days in this transition. And then Joshua, what we call, I, I like to call him the lesser Joshua because I think he's pointing to the great, greater Joshua in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in many ways as we go through uh, these books. Um, he's there. He provides this way into this earthly promised land. The greater Joshua has taken us into our final rest into that final land. So praise the Lord for that. Well, there's two challenging chapters um, to kind of work through. I hope I, hope I was somewhat clear. Um, they're, they're, they're a little overwhelming when you first read them and, and try to figure out how you're going to preach these. But uh, I think they're fascinating. There's some ladies in here to be proud of. They came and they believed that God cared for them and wanted to see them prosper. And they believed in that. And then God deals with Moses and Joshua and all these other issues to make sure the nation has a shepherd to watch over them. Father, thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd. That's what he's called. He's called our chief shepherd. And he lays his life down for the lambs, and he has forgiven us. His blood was the last blood. There is no need of any more blood. He's the final lamb. And he is the final forgiveness in him and him alone. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to you, Father, except through him. And all this is pointing that way. And we love studying the nation of Israel because it's all pointing towards Jesus. 
It's all pointing to the promises that are fully fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it teaches us, Lord, of your grace and your mercy. But we also see this is human. This is people. This is people dying and birthing and, and promises of God. And, and so we learn much about ourselves and we learn much about you, God, when we study the Old Testament. And so we thank you for this. And I pray you would help us keep learning and trusting you. That we would be people who are not rebellious. We'd be people who are forgiven people and live like forgiven people, act like forgiven people. Lord, you'll use those type of people. We do thank you for our church. Lord, please continue to protect us and provide for us as we follow our chief, chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.